ಶ್ರೀಹರಿಂ ಪರಮಂದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ ವ್ಯಾಪಕೋಕಾಮ್ಯಹಂ we have reached with the 40th verse of aparokshanubhuti a crucial point in the study of advaita vedanta till now up to verse, verse number 40 shankaracharya has guided us through a series of closely argued um uh, verses where he has try to show us how we are not the body and mind the self is not the body or the body is not the self the mind is also not the self a series of arguments subtle densely interwoven a very powerful performance by shankaracharya i think if not the greatest philosopher who ever lived certainly among the greatest now after doing that and specially coming to a climax which we saw in the last class in the 39th verse where he shows through seven arguments packed into one verse um why i am not the mind why the self is not the mind so the self is neither the body nor the mind now this is what has been shown so far now at this point there is a major shift in the next verse we shall see it's as if shankaracharya is reversing this he says have you got it so far that you are not the body and mind you, you begin to say yes i think i'm beginning to understand it's very interesting well you are wrong <laughs> the atman and the body mind are actually not separate and we'll go what do you mean the subject and the object are actually not separate the self and the not self are actually not two separate real things that's what he will speak about now why does he do this then why does he first of all show us that the body and mind and the atman are not the same the atman or the self is something different from the body and something different from the mind we are not the body mind and clearly distinguishes between the two the self and the not self and then why does he proceed from now onwards to show that the not self is not different from the self the anatman is not different from the atman what is the meaning of this what what is achieved by this you see Advaita Vedanta has two steps. It's a two-step process. There is an intermediate step and there is a final step. In Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, both steps have to be undertaken. What are the two steps? The first step is to isolate this Atman, is to understand the Atman in itself, apart from the body and mind. And then to see that the body and mind are actually in reality nothing but the atman 
Now, why do we have to take the, uh, these two steps? Why first distinguish and then again merge the two together? You see, the reason is, the problem lies with us. Advaita Vedanta tells us that we are Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss. It could directly tell us that, how we are Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss. Why first distinguish Brahman from body and mind and then merge body and mind back into Brahman? Why do that? The reason is, if we are directly told that you are existence, consciousness, bliss, it won't work. We have a twofold problem. One problem is that we do not know that we are Brahman, first problem. And the second bigger problem is, we think we know who we are. We think we are, we, I know, I am this body and mind, that's who I am. So we think we know who we are, that's the first big problem. First of all, we have to be convinced what we know is wrong. Without that, it's no use telling us that you are Brahman. I know I am this person, this limited body and the mind functioning within this body. This physical body and the subtle body within. This is obvious to me. Physical body is obvious to me and if I just reflect inwards, mind, feelings, perceptions, this is obvious to me. I understand this. And this is who I think I am. I have no any other identity apart from this. At this point, if Vedanta tells me, you are infinite existence, it's openly contradictory. It's blatantly contradictory. How can I be infinite existence? I am so limited. I'm a little body. You are immortal. How can I be immortal? I'm born and I'm sure I shall die. Your pure consciousness. I say, no, I am flesh and blood. So everything that Advaita says will seem absolutely contradictory to us. It's impossible to grasp. That's why a two-step process has to be done. That first of all, show me why I am not this body. Show me why I am not this mind. And then only, once I have isolated consciousness as a witness of body and mind, then I can understand Brahman. And then finally, realize body and mind are nothing but Brahman. Now at this point, one more thing has to be understood. When two things are separated, when two things are separated, there, is, there are two possibilities, two kinds of difference. One difference is two different entities, this glass cup, the, the cover of the glass and the glass itself, two entities, I can separate them. Here is the glass and here is the cover of the glass, two entities. They are distinct entities. This is also real and this is also real and they can exist separately, it can exist apart from this, and they can exist together also. That's one separation, two different entities. Another kind of separation is this table. If I tell you the table is one entity and its reality is wood, wood is the substance out of which this table is formed. In reality, the, um, this is wood. You have to understand what is wood apart from what you understand a table to be. You see, this separation cannot be accomplished physically like this. This is something different, this is something different. You cannot show the table differently from the wood. But you can understand it. 
you can discern it, you can analyze or dis discriminate. That is in Sanskrit called viveka. Understand what is water, quite apart from waves and bubbles and foam. Understand what is gold, quite apart from the variety of gold ornaments that you see in a jewelry shop. But this apart from it, you cannot physically accomplish it. It has to be understood. Gold has to be understood as the reality, the material substance of the, of the ornaments. Water has to be understood as the reality, the material substance of waves and foam and bubbles. And wood has to be understood as the reality or the material substance of wooden furniture. Now, having understood what wood is, intellectually, in your understanding, apart from the table, after this, if I ask, if I ask you, now what is the table? Are they two entities? Really speaking, are they two entities? Something called wood and something called a table? Wood and a table, are they two entities distinct like this, separate? You will say no. There is no thing called a table apart from the wood. This no thing called the table apart from the wood, this is what is called in Vedanta, mithya, an appearance, falsity. What do they mean by falsity? By falsity in Vedanta is not meant, never, non-existence. When Vedanta says something is false, mithya, it does not mean that thing does not exist. Rather what it means is that that thing does not have an independent existence. It depends for its existence on something else. Just like this table depends for its existence, for its very substantiality on the wood composing it. The wave depends for its existence and its form and its action on the water consisting of that, constituting the wave. And the ornaments depend on gold for their very existence, for their substance. Compared to the water, the wave is mithya. In comparison to water, apart from water. Compared to the wood, the table is mithya. And the ornaments are mithya, false, appearances in themselves, apart from the gold. It is in this sense that Advaita Vedanta says, Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Brahman alone is real, the world is false. When Advaita Vedanta says the world is false, it's not denying that the world exists. It's not denying that, that, that you or we experience the world. There is something which exists and which appears as our world to us. Understood properly, it is Brahman. The world understood properly is Brahman. Brahman misunderstood is the world. When we realize the truth, everything is God or everything is Brahman. When we are not aware of the truth, when we live in Maya, it seems to be a world of plurality and we seem to be separate individuals. So this is what Advaita has to correct, this error. And how does it do it? First of all, it says that we must realize what we are within ourselves. And for that it has to correct the error that we are bodies and minds. For that purpose, all these 40 verses. Why I am not the body? Why I am not the mind? The sthula sharira, physical body. Sukshma sharira, subtle body. I am not them. I am their witness. 
Have you noticed how in the famous verse Nirvana Shatakam, the, the hymn, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham, I am Shiva, of the nature of bliss and consciousness. But it always starts with first disidentifying. Mano buddhyahankara chittani naham. Shankaracharya sings, I am not the mind. I am not the intellect. I am not the memory. I am not the ego. I am not the senses. I am not the body made of five elements. And then he says, I am existence. I am consciousness and bliss. I am of the nature of Shiva. So this is the first step, this disidentification. But the second step also must come. The finally, the second step must come. Otherwise, where is Advaita Vedanta? Advaita, non-dualism. If you have distinguished consciousness apart from body and mind, you are not left with non-dualism. You have consciousness, you have the mind, and we distinguished so many, we, we noted so many features of the mind, so many aspects, 17 parts of the subtle body. Remember in the last class, 17 parts of the subtle body. And then we have the physical body of so many parts. And not only that, we have this universe of thousands, of millions of entities, of billions of entities, living and non-living. How is it non-dual? How is it non-dualism? How does Advaita propose to establish non-dualism? Having understood what a pure consciousness or Brahman is, pure existence, consciousness, bliss, what it is, having understood, uh, having understood that, then what Advaita wants to do is, come, come, sit. Having understood that, now what Advaita wants to do is to see that all these billions of entities are in essence not different from Brahman. They are Brahman itself. That, that is what Advaita will try to establish. There is no second thing apart from Brahman. You know what it is like? If you count the pews here, you will get 16 pews probably or 15 pews here. If you count, you'll say, okay, 15. How many entities are there? 15. Now the substance out of which they are made is wood. If you count the substance, how many entities are there from the point of view of wood? What will you say? One. That does not mean the pews will disappear and you all will be left sitting on the carpet. There will be a mass of wood. No. It will remain exactly as it is. But your, your understanding, your point of view will shift from effect to cause. From product to its substance, to the, to the reality behind it. Product are the pews on which you are sitting. The substance is the wood. It's a change in, in, the, in the paradigm in which we perceive. So Advaita is going to do something like that. The world will be left as it is. Don't worry. Your car will be still in the parking lot and Los Angeles will be still out there. And everything will be there as it is. And the body also will be there and mind also will be functioning. No problem at all. But you will realize it is one reality everywhere, inside and outside. One existence, consciousness, please. We are one in Brahman. That's what we will realize. So that's the huge project ahead of us next. That's going to start from the 41st verse up to the 89th, 90th verse. So the next 40, 50 verses will be how this entire universe is nothing but Brahman. 
how will they accomplish that they will show that which seems to be not brahman different from brahman different from the self the not self that is um false it has no existence of its own that's what will be shown i'll repeat again atma anatma atma is the self anatma not self now they are trying to prove the non duality of the atman other than atman nothing else is there so what's the only way of proving it that what you are perceiving to be independent entities apart from the atman is actually not apart from the atman you see 15 pews here they are all different from each other but with respect to wood one not only one there is no second thing apart from the wood do you notice the pews are not any second entity apart from the wood what i mean by that is if you take the wood away you cannot find a second thing called a pew it won't be there so from the point of view of the wood all these pews here are non dual not a second thing apart from the wood from the point of view of brahman advaita will try to show there is no second entity in the whole universe it is one entity non dual entity and that's what you are that's what we all are that's what they will try to show now in the next um, nearly 50 verses let's start this verse 41 so this is a point of what they call inflection a sudden change in the direction ಇತ್ಯಾತ್ಮದೇಹಭಾಗೇನಪಂಚಸ್ಯಸತ್ಯತಾಪಂಚಸ್ಯಸತ್ಯತಾಕ್ತಾಕ್ತಾಕ್
किम पुरुषार्थता पुरुषार्थ व्हाट इज द गोल ऑफ ह्यूमन लाइफ द गोल ऑफ ह्यूमन लाइफ इज मोक्ष लिबरेशन हाउ इज मोक्ष डिफाइंड अटेनमेंट ऑफ ब्लिस एंड ओवरकमिंग ऑफ सफरिंग एंड दीसिस ऑफ अद्वैत वेदांत इज इट रिक्वायर्स नॉन ड्यूएलिटी ओवरकमिंग ऑफ सफरिंग रिक्वायर्स नॉन ड्यूएलिटी अटेनमेंट ऑफ ब्लिस रिक्वायर्स नॉन ड्यूएलिटी यू सी दिस हैज टू बी अंडरस्टूड ऑल्सो इन उपनिषद इट सेड द्वितीयाद्वयम भवती when there is a second real entity i'm using the words very carefully second real entity there is fear what do you mean there is fear if there is something apart from us some reality we perceive apart from us what will be our relationship to it it will be either one, either one of desire i want it or one of aversion it is bad depending upon what it is if it's something you like i want it if it's something that i do not like aversion at the root of both desire and aversion is fear fear is fundamental desire itself means i am incomplete i am incomplete otherwise why would i want something from outside whatever it is if it is food or money or relationship name and fame even if i am this body the body itself requires so many things from outside it requires air and food and um, and a suitable environment otherwise it would die so dependence on something outside i want these things shows that i am incomplete that i am not i am not purnam complete or whole or infinite i am finite and aversion also shows that i am incomplete that i am there is something that i fear there is something that is Uh, that i do not want uh, i am limited by such things so duality implies um fear dvitiyad vai bhayam bhavati from the second comes a sense of fear incompleteness desire and aversion not only that we cannot have true joy or true peace or bliss without uh, without being infinite to chandogya upanishad says यो वै भूमा तत्सुखम नाल पे सुखम अस्ति वैट विच इज इनफिनिट इज ब्लिस देर इज नो ब्लिस नो परमनेंट पीस इन द फाइनाइट वॉट एवर इज फाइनाइट वी टेन टू ओवरफ्लो वी टेन टू एक्सीड इट इमीडिएटली वेन यू पुट अ लिमिट टू ह्यूमन थॉट ह्यूमन डिजायर ह्यूमन अचीवमेंट वेन यू पुट अ लिमिट द इमीडिएट टेंडेंसी इज टू थिंक वॉट इज मोर देन दिस what can how would it be to have more money than this how would it be to have more success than this so we have a tendency to overflow there is no permanent peace or bliss in the limited there is only joy in the unlimited yo vai bhuma bhuma literally means the vast that which is the vast which meaning brahman that is joy and there is no joy in the limited so in duality there cannot be any permanent peace or joy nor can there be overcoming of suffering the very existence of duality means suffering is there is the advaita vedanta functions in this way why are we in this world seeking little bit of happiness suffering so much in this world and doomed to a certain death because of this body 
If you are tied to this body, this, that's the destiny of this body. But why do we have this body? Follow this chain of reasoning. Why do we have this body? Vedanta says because of our past karma. It is a product of our karma. We have done many things in the past. We have wanted many things in the past. And the combined result is our experiences which we are having with this body. But why did we do karma? Because we want desire. Because of our desires we have done karma. Good karma and bad karma. Good karma leads to happy experiences in this life. Bad karma leads to unpleasant experiences in this life. But good and bad karma we have done because the root cause is desire. This is where the Buddha stopped. There is suffering in the world. Dukkham, sarvam dukkham. Why? There is a cause of suffering. And he said, Trishna, hunger, thirst. Not physical hunger or thirst. But a psychic, a deep-rooted thirst for being, existing in this world and grasping. So, desire is at the root of all karma. Doing something to get something. But then why do we have desire? Why do we have desire? Vedanta says, if you search why we have desire, Vedanta says it's ignorance. Ignorance is at the root of desire. Ignorance of what? Think about it. Ignorance of what will make us want something. Ignorance of the fact that we are infinite, we do not need anything. We don't know that. Therefore, we, we think we are finite and we want something. I'll repeat that. Ignorance of what will make us seek things. Ignorance of our complete infinite nature. If I am complete and infinite, I do not need anything. If such a thing is there and I do not know that, then the result will be seeking, grasping. So we do not know our infinite nature. We do not know that we are Brahman. So not knowing our non-dual nature, infinite, non-duality are the same. Not knowing our infinite or non-dual nature leads to desire. Desire leads to karma. Karma leads to the effects of karma, our life. This is the chain. So at the root, the problem is duality and it has to be overcome by non-duality. From the Advaita point of view, duality is an illusion. We do not know the truth, therefore we think we are in a world of duality. And so, from that perspective comes the question. What good will be achieved by proving duality? Saying to Shankaracharya, what you have done so far, you have proved the reality of duality. You have proved that, there is, that I am a self apart from the body and mind. So there are two things. One real thing called the self and another enormous set of real things called the non-self. Mind, body, world. What good is it? You have proved, you have proved the truth of duality. So that's the question here. And he has added, Yathokta Tarka Shastrena As it is said in the philosophy of Tarka. Tarka Shastra in the philosophy of Tarka. What does it mean? You see, in Indian um, in India, the word darshana in Sanskrit, the word darshana, it means, it's a very profound word, it means seeing, literally it means seeing. I'm looking at you, darshana. You're looking at me, darshana. But in a very elevated sense, um, if you go to visit a deity in a temple and you look at the deity, in India they will say we are doing darshana of the deity. Or 
If you go to visit a saint, a holy person, I have come for your darshana. Darshana means to see. Darshana also means intuition, an insight into something. That's darshan. Also in India, philosophy is called darshan. In fact, in Indian universities, if you go to philosophy, you ask for the philosophy department, they will say that's the darshan vibhag, the philosophy department. So in India, philosophy and darshan are the same word. Philosophy is darshan, darshan is philosophy. It's a very evocative word. That means it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just an academic exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. Indian philosophy is a spiritual exercise. Designed to make us see, to make us see, to give us an insight into our spiritual nature. That's the purpose of darshan, of Indian philosophy. So, when we come to the study of Indian philosophy, there are many, many schools of thought. Many schools of thought. What we are studying here is one school of thought called Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. One way of classifying the Indian philosophies, Darshan, is of the 12 schools. Six orthodox schools, six heterodox schools. 12 schools of Indian philosophy. Six of them are called Astika in Sanskrit, which means orthodox. And six of these schools are called Nastika, which means heterodox. What does orthodox, heterodox, what does, what does all this mean? Briefly, those ancient philosophers who accepted the Vedas as revelation, as revealed scripture, as a source of spiritual knowledge, they were called the orthodox philosophers, Astika Darshana. Who are they? The six traditional schools are Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, Purva Mimamsa and Vedanta. Uttara Mimamsa or Vedanta. Six schools. And these are the orthodox Hindu schools. So today we'll call them Hindu philosophy because they all accept that the Vedas are source of spiritual knowledge. But there were others who rejected the Vedas as source of spiritual knowledge. And we have six of those philosophers, six schools, which reject Vedas as, as a, a source of uh, spiritual knowledge. Who are those schools? First of all are the materialists. And there were a range of these materialists. Even today, when you look at the arguments of many of the modern atheists, the new atheist movement, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, you find they are echoing many of the arguments which were put, put, forth, put forth by these ancient Indian, Indian materialists. Same arguments. So that's one school. They are called the Charvaka, the Charvaka school. And then there are five other heterodox schools. There is the school of Jainism. Jainism is an ancient Indian religion older than Buddhism. It's older than Buddhism. And, and the, maybe the most peaceful, non-violent people on this planet. And they are well known in India. Here in uh, America, many, of, many may not know about them. Um, the more orthodox of the Jains, they will put, they are so non-violent that they will put a mask over their face so that they don't even breathe in insects. 
to filter out the tiniest of germs uh, of, uh, of insects or bugs. They would take a peacock feather fan and gently sweep the path when they walk so that they don't crush insects when they're walking. And they don't engage in agriculture because that would kill the worms in the, in the soil, things like that. So they are extremely non-violent, absolutely pacifist. Jainism, they have a very sophisticated, very highly developed philosophy, which is now only coming into light. People are investigating it and a very interesting philosophy. Jainism. I'd just like to mention that, you know, logic, modern logic, traditionally has been too valued. A statement can be true or false. A proposition can be true or false. Bi-valued logic, truth or falsity. The Jainas, more than 2,000 years ago, developed a seven-valued logic. Seven options. They called it Saptabhangi Nyaya. Um, so, their philosophy also was organized in a way which would promote non-violence. Philosophical non-violence. Right? Whatever you say, does God exist? And they will say, maybe God does. God does exist in one perspective. And if the Buddhist comes and says, no, no, there is no God. And he says, you are also right in another perspective. <laughs> so they have this seven-valued logic. So that's the school of Jainism. Then there are four Buddhist schools. There are actually many schools of Buddhism, but four major schools of Buddhist philosophy were recognized in ancient India. And they were the Sautrantika, the Vaibhashika, the Yogachara Vijnanavada, and the Madhyamaka Shunyavada. I'm not going to give you a history lesson or a history of philosophy. It will, it's a course in itself. It's wonderful. It's an ocean of philosophical thinking, vast. Tremendous development of philosophy took place in India over a period of nearly two, three thousand years nearly. And whatever literature exists now, it's still, still enormous. It's an ocean. There was a project going on, Karl Potter in this country. He undertook a project to translate the major works of these philosophers, all of these philosophers, whatever is existing, into English. So I think it's already running into 15 volumes, big volumes. Already in 15 volumes, just the original works. So now you have 12 philosophies, six schools of traditional orthodox thought, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, Purva, Mivamsa and Vedanta. And the six schools of heterodox, Nastika, the Charvaka, the Jaina, and the four schools of Buddhism. Now, among all of these schools, there is Vedanta. And in Vedanta, there are many schools. Within Vedanta, there are sub-schools of Vedanta. There are at least seven or eight major schools. Among which, one of them is Advaita Vedanta, which we are studying. And among all these schools... Um, and even this division doesn't do justice. There are many schools which have been left out. For example, the magnificent uh, Kashmir Shaivism, Pratyavigya school, that has not been mentioned. We have mentioned 12 schools. If you go to an old textbook of Indian philosophy, uh, the more well-known one is Sarvadarshana Sangraha of Madhavacharya. There you find a list of 15 schools. They don't follow this classification which we are following today. So many, many schools have been left out. Um, among all these schools, Advaita Vedanta is unique. 
especially among the Hindu schools, the six schools of Hindu philosophy, Advaita Vedanta, the one which we are studying now, is unique. Unique in what sense? It is the, it's unique for its non-duality. All the other schools are pluralistic and dualistic. It's unique because it says man and God are one and the same reality. It's unique because it says the world is an appearance. You know, people say that the Hindus are, they dismiss the world as an appearance. They say that it's all Maya, it's an appearance, it's an illusion. Well, no. If you look at Hindu philosophy, out of the six major schools, five of them are firmly realistic. The world is real. They are firmly dualistic. It is only in the sixth school in Vedanta, one sub-school called Advaita Vedanta says that the world is an appearance. In fact, the world is an appearance, it's mostly the Buddhist schools who say that. Most of the Hindu schools take the world to be absolutely real. Alright. Now, among these schools, why I'm saying all this, I'm giving you a, you a map of Indian philosophy. The sheer vastness of it. Now, among these schools, the first two I mentioned, Nyaya and Vaisheshika. The Nyaya school of Hindu philosophy is famous for its logic. They are the masters of logic. If you enjoy logical thinking, if you enjoy mathematical precision, you would love, you would fall in love with Nyaya. I had the occasion to study Nyaya for um, three, I took three courses from a, from a very respected pundit in the Asiatic Society, Asiatic Society in Calcutta. So we used to study for five hours each day, 15 days. So the first course was five hours a day, 15 days. And uh, on the third course, the, the advanced course which I took, the topic of discussion for 15 days, five hours a day, is, the topic was, literally, I'm not joking, the topic was nothing. Nothing. They call it abhava, absence. They just analyzed one sentence. There is no pot on the table. Bhutale ghato nasti. There is no pot on the table. This was a sentence which the Pandit would write painstakingly on the, on the blackboard and then proceed for five hours to talk about it. <laughs> there is no pot on the table. Brilliant. It's incredible. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. How can you talk about something that's not there? The absence. What is? What does it mean for something to be absent? And uh, I remember this, this old man who was a caretaker who was uh, working in that hall where we sat. It's, it's a vid famous Vidyasagar Hall in uh, Asiatic Society in, in Kolkata. By the way, Sri Ramakrishna visited the Asiatic Society. He visited the society and uh, he had some interesting experiences. He saw a skeleton for the first time and he saw how the bones of the skeleton were tied together with, with wire. Later on when he was very ill with cancer, he prayed to the Divine Mother, just like the skeleton in the society, please knit this body together so that it can stay together for some more time, you know, to keep the body together. It's, it's disintegrating. So he gave the example. And when, when I went there, I asked, is that skeleton still there which Sri Ramakrishna saw? And they said, no, it's in the... Now they have a museum of natural history. 
So they have transferred that museum. It's called the National Museum, next door to the Asiatic Society. So the skeleton is still there, but it's transferred to the museum now. And I had a very interesting experience. All these philosophies, one, one example I'll tell you. There's a lady who is a curator of the museum there, and they have a wonderful collection of ancient documents, uh, scriptures, Buddhist, Jain, Hindu, all these philosophies, handwritten, dating back. The oldest one they showed me was, I think, 1400 years old, um, a Buddhist document. One of Ashoka's stones, actually original stone, is kept there where the Emperor Ashoka, 2,000 years ago, had inscribed the message of the Buddha and peace and non-violence. He had it inscribed on stones. So I went and touched that, and the curator from behind, she said, yes, Swami, every day in the morning we also come and touch it. You know, you feel like touching part of 20 centuries ago. Some emperor there, he, he had these words written, words of the Buddha. And then she was showing me three documents, three manuscripts, handwritten, one is written in Sanskrit, one is written in Pali, the original language of the Buddhist scriptures. The next one is written in Sanskrit, and the third one is written in Tibetan. So original scriptures, three pitakas of the teachings of the Buddha were, were first written down in Pali. Later on with the rise of um, Mahayana Buddhism and the Sanskrit entered into Buddhism, so they were translated into Sanskrit. And later when it went to Tibet, the Tibetan monks, Dalai Lama's followers, the, the Lamas, they considered it to be a great privilege to translate a Sanskrit Buddhist text into Tibetan. So that Tibetan script is there. And I was most impressed by this lady, the curator, who read off almost illegible Pali, Sanskrit and Tibetan. I said, you know all three languages? She said, oh yes, we have to. I have uh, PhDs in all three. <laughs> uh, this is so impressive. Anyway, not all of them are scholars. They're a very humble caretaker who was working in the hall when we were studying. Every day, there is no pot on the table. That, because I was the only monk in the class, probably the caretaker felt safe approaching me and he came to me and quietly said, Swami, if you want, I can get a pot. There are lots of them in the market. <laughs> He felt bad, you know, that every day the professor comes and says there is no pot on the table. And they crib about it for five hours a day. And the next day they say there is no pot on the table. He says, if you want, I can get it. It's so many are there in the market outside. Do you want one? He genuinely thought we wanted one. It reminds me of the story of the person who, you know, a boy ran away from the village and became a monk in the Himalayas and some, someone from the village went to search for him. And they found him in an ashram of monks where they were all non-dualists, Advaita, like what we are studying now. And he stayed there some, some time and came back to the village. And villagers asked him, so how, how was he? How is that ashram? How are the monks? What do they do? And the, this man said, well, they have a problem with snakes. <laughs> There's apparently a rope which has been covered. A snake comes and sits on it. And all through the day, they talk about the snake and, they, and I think they drive the snake away. The next day, it's back again. And they start talking about the snake, the snake and the rope. <laughs> the classic example of Advaita Vedanta. So the two philosophies, the, the, the logic, philosophy of logic which I spoke about, Nyaya 
Um, now, I said, you'll be fascinated with Nyaya, but don't plunge into it. It'll give you a headache, too. I remember once our revered president at that time, president of the order was Swami Bhuteshanandaji. Um, and I was a novice. And I remember standing outside the door and all the monks were in, filling the room. He was the president of the order. He was 98 years old at that time. And he was a very, very scholarly monk, one of the most scholarly monks we ever had. Master of Vedanta, but also master of Nyaya, the school of logic. And somebody was talking about this school of logic, Nyaya. And he said, it's not necessary to know too much about it. Little bit of basic knowledge is enough for you to study Vedanta. Some basic knowledge of Nyaya is necessary. Then one monk said, but Swami, there is a joy in studying Nyaya and thinking about Nyaya, the school of logic. There's a joy. And then he said, Bhuteshanandaji, he said, that same logic, same joy you can find in playing chess. Meaning thereby, it's not a spiritual joy. It's like playing chess. Strategy. Outthinking somebody else. So, that's wonderful. But, but that's not spirituality. So, that's the school of Nyaya. It's a wonderful system. Um, now, that's what he's referring to here. The Nyaya philosophers are dualists. They're firmly dualists. They say that there are many independent realities in this world. In fact, they say, the, the Nyaya, and there's another philosophy called Vaisheshika. They are friendly to each other. They have the same worldview. The Nyayas, Nyayikas are masters of logic and the Vaisheshikas are masters of uh, metaphysics. What is real in this world? In uh, modern philosophical language, you would say epistemology and ontology. The Nyayikas are more concerned with how we know and the process of reasoning and the Vaisheshikas are concerned with what is real in the world. And they come to this conclusion, the Vaisheshika especially, they come to the conclusion, the world is composed of seven different kinds of entities, saptapadartha, seven kinds of entities, among which one kind is substance, like this, real things. And for them, substance is of nine types. The five elements, earth, water, fire, air, space, and space, uh, and, and then time and mind and one of those ultimate realities is the soul atman so no non-duality in fact full duality there is the self and there are the five elements there is this physical universe they are all living beings all of them are separate and real and the self dwells in a living body that's their idea so that's the idea of the tarkashastra tarkashastra is another name for nyaya vaisheshika the two schools of nyaya and vaisheshika they are called Tarka Shastra. All this was to say, what he has said here is, this word Tarka Shastra, this is what is said in Tarka Shastra, what you have proved till now with all your 40 verses, is all that already has been said in Tarka Shastra. That there is a body and there is a mind and there is something real called a self apart from body and mind. What new thing have you proved? And how is this non-dualism? How is this non-dualism? is absolute dualism. And it has been already proved by the ancient philosophies of 
न्याय एन वैशेषिक तर्कशास्त्र आई एम रिमाइंडेड ऑफ दिस इफ इट्स अद्वैत वेदांत यू शुड से समथिंग नॉन ड्यूलिस्टिक दिस इज नॉट नॉन ड्यूलिस्टिक आई एम रिमाइंडेड ऑफ दिस पंडित अ स्कॉलर हु इज टू गो टू अ स्वामी एंड दे वुड आर्ग्यू द पंडित वुड आर्ग्यू इन फेवर ऑफ ड्यूअलिज्म एंड द स्वामी वुड आर्ग्यू इन फेवर ऑफ नॉन ड्यूअलिज्म the pandit one day he said whatever you say swami dualism is is correct dualism is is the right the right way to look at the world there are separate realities dualism is the right way to look at the world and this works best in hindi this joke and the swami replied to him in hindi i'll translate he said kuch nayi baat batao tell me something new tell me something new and the pandit was confused what do you mean tell you something new and the swami said that dualism is real i am different and the world is different from me he says even that cow knows cow knows that i am different and the grass is different if i eat the grass my hunger will be satisfied wo gau bhi janti hai dwait satya hai even the cow knows that dualism is is real if you are a pandit tell me something new something the cow does not know if you are a pandit a scholar a philosopher tell me something that the cow doesn't know so advaita actually tells us something remarkable the dualism is an appearance it seems that there are 15 views here 15 entities but from a deeper analysis there is only one reality here from the point of view of waves if you count endless countless waves are there in the pacific ocean out there but look at it as water how many things one one reality one and non dual no second thing apart from water show me one thing in those waves now don't count the fishes and <laughs> whales and dolphins but the ocean itself show me one thing there one wave or one bit of surf or drop of drop which is different from water if you take away the water in the pacific ocean what remains nothing it will disappear so from the point of view of water water is non dual with respect to the ocean and all the waves similarly advaita vedanta proposes to find out something which is non dual right here in this life so that's the question you have only proved duality now he will explain why he did this we already know I'll just touch it and then we'll stop. Forty-two. Ityatma deha bhedena, ityatma deha bhedena, dehatmatvam nivaritam, dehatmatvam nivaritam, idanim deha bhedasya, idanim deha bhedasya, yasat. ट to remove that notion we i showed you that you are not the body and not the mind once you realize what you are pure consciousness the next step is 
idanim now we shall proceed to show something remarkable that the body the mind and the vast universe out there has no existence apart from the pure consciousness which you have discovered i'll repeat that first i showed you that you are not the body and not the mind you are pure consciousness the atman now i will show you and that was shown for what reason because you thought you are the body and mind so to remove that to dispel that error to correct that error that's what we did now what we shall proceed to do is to show the non duality of that pure consciousness that there is no second thing apart from that pure consciousness which you can call body or mind or universe just like i'll show you the reality of the table is wood and then i will show you there is no second thing here called table it's not that there is wood and a table i can't show them separately to you so there is only one reality first know that it is wood and then merge the table back into the wood know that it's one reality you can see it as a table you can see it as wood also so that's what is going to be done idanim now deha vedasya the body mind which we separated hi asatvam it's not real in itself sputaya sputamuchyate it will be explained clearly over the next 45 46 verses all right let me stop here that's what we did now we have taken a big step forward in vedanta this is called adhyaropa apavadanyaya superimposition and desuperimposition they will um first of all distinguish the rope from the snake the reality is not the snake the reality is the rope and then show you that snake is nothing apart from the rope that snake is not real in itself do you see first of all why do why do they have to do that because we think it's a snake we are wrong we think it's a snake they will show us that it's not a snake it's a rope mm. apart from the snake there is a rope and the second thing they will do is show that there is no snake at all it's a rope only you see if straight away somebody tells us you are satchidananda existence consciousness please we say no we are not when you show that there is satchidananda they first accept ah uh, yes do you think you are a body yes all right let 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 the body be there but now try to analyze am i the body you think you are a mind yes all right let the mind be there now analyze am i the mind you will find that you are the witness of body and mind having found that now you merge the body and mind back into the witness question yes there's a question there this is called adhyaropa apavad sorry i don't know if i got this right mm. when you say the the body does not or anything else does not have any separate existence apart from consciousness yes how are you defining existence in the sense defining the word existence isn't it tautological in the sense that you're defining existence as something which i can perceive and you're saying i cannot perceive anything without consciousness hence everything has a borrowed existence no am i am i getting this wrong isn't it isn't it tautological the, how do you define existence is is what i know existence is being anything that you know according to advaita vedanta anything that exists in three periods of time past present and future is what is called existence 
they call it pure existence or pure being. And in contrast to that is borrowed existence. It seems to exist, but its existence depends on something more fundamental. Right? Those, the cause of that. The best example I would say is the pot and clay example. Shankaracharya will bring it up later on. He says, when there's a pot, we think the, there it is, the pot exists. He says, look more carefully. There is something called clay, which is the material cause of the pot. Cause means material cause here, substance. And this clay is the material out of which the pot has been made. When you say this, look at what you have done. At first the person saw only one thing, pot. Now the person thinks of two things, clay and pot. Clay is something out of which something called pot has been made. Second stage, third stage. Now Vedanta says, examine the pot. See that it is clay through and through. The top is clay, the bottom is clay, inside is clay, outside is clay. In fact, there is no pot apart from the clay. Third stage. No pot, no real pot apart from the clay. Nothing separate. So the fourth stage will be, then it is clay alone. Pot is a name, pot is a form, pot is a function. The reality is clay, the substance is clay. Now what has happened? The pot is still sitting there. But what happened now? You started off with what is called, you know, you thought it was a pot. At the end of this process, now you know it is clear alone. In the same way, they start off with the world. And then they tell you there's something called pure being, pure existence, a pure, and so that is called Brahman. Then we get the feeling that there is something called Brahman, there's something called the world. Then they will show us, they will go and show us that everything that you see here has no existence. It's just a name, a form and a function. The reality is pure being. And then the fourth stage will come. There is no real thing called the world. It is Brahman alone with name, form and function. So this is how the analysis goes. But for your question, things have borrowed existence. The sign of something having a borrowed existence is it comes into being and goes out of being. It, it is created and is destroyed. That which is intrinsically existing, being, that never, that is neither born nor is destroyed. It always is. Everything else draws sustenance from it. Yeah. There's a question there. All that is not is yes. Brahman. All that is and all that is not is Brahman. Yes, there is a way in which you can say it. You see, when you say all, when we say all, by that we mean all things. Stars, planets, atoms, quasars, living beings, all things. Maybe even abstract things like numbers. So they are, they are, that's what we call the all. And that's what we call all that is. This is the universe. You follow? And if you remove them, like that logician, the pot is not on the table. The absence, things which are not, they don't exist. All that is not. Both of them depend on Brahman which is pure consciousness for their very existence. 
It's only because of Brahman that you are able to appreciate all things which are. It's only because of Brahman that you are able to appreciate the absence of all things. So in that sense, yes, all that is and all that is not is Brahman. Swami Vivekananda wrote a poem to Mary Hale, one of his young American disciples, a young American woman. She, she actually had written a poem telling Swami Vivekananda, I have understood what you have taught, that all is God. Like all is Brahman, all is God. Swami Vivekananda wrote back saying that, I have never taught such a strange doctrine that all is God. And this girl was, sad, was uh, confused. You've clearly said that. Everything is God. You kept, you've said it so many times. Swami Vivekananda writes, I, Not that all is God. All is not God alone is. From the point of view of clay, there is no thing called a pot. It's clay alone. If you, show, if you say that there is something called pot and something called clay, show me a pot apart from the clay, if it's a clay pot. You cannot. Pot is a name and form. It has no substance of, it all, of its own. The weight of the clay and the weight of the pot is the same. There's no reality apart from that in, in there. In the same way, Brahman alone is. The all is not Brahman alone is. That is Advaita Vedanta. That's where, just as a matter of fact, what distinguishes Advaita Vedanta from pantheism. Pantheism is, God has become the all. Table, chair, everything, God has become. All of this is God. Advaita Vedanta insists, all of this is not. The focus is on the word is. None of it has any existence apart from Brahman. Brahman alone is. We are into high philosophy now. <laughs> Question? Hmm. Swamiji, last time you talked about uh, action in inaction and inaction in action. Last time? Yeah, I think yesterday you were talking about uh, um, you know, how, how uh, the various ways in, in terms of you know, meditation and in terms of sometimes when we there is action and inaction and inaction in action. There is a shloka in the Gita, karmanya karma yapashyet. Yes. yes. But yes. what is the question? The question, I was reflecting on that in the context of Mahabharata, when Draupadi's uh, Vastraharam, while that was happening when Bhishma Pita and all great you know, scholars and sages were there, they haven't done any action. I was trying to see what's, how, how come in that context. I, what okay, that's a different subject altogether. The different subject altogether. Mm. Yes, you can relate it. In fact, you can understand it from the point of view of Brahman being the only reality. But I won't go into that now. It will take a long time. Uh, is there any of the questions related to today's class? Yes. Just wait for the microphone. Here, in the front here. When you were giving us... Um a summary of all the darshanas. Yes. The six being the orthodox and the other six, the het heterodox and so forth. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the ones that speak to us very strongly about the two realities yes. are uh, Nyaya and, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
uh, Advaita Vedanta? Uh, no, before that, Atisha uh, the two uh, Sankhya and uh, um, yoga. yoga. They establish two separate realities that never really merge, and yet um, both of them, and yoga, of course, we are so aware of its contribution to uh, Vedantic thought and so forth. Yes. Um, and then when you look at the heterodox school, when you look at uh, uh, the Madhimika, uh, uh, that, uh, Shunyavada. that has such a great tradition, um, do you see Advaita Vedanta then as a culmination of, the, of this kind of zigzagging thought between the two schools? Or is it just another darshana? Mm. that holds out just as valid as, uh, as these? It's a beautiful question. Um, true, I've thought about this. And you can see a grand process of development in um, these schools. If you take Nyaya and Vaisheshika, they are frankly pluralistic. They look at the entire world. You know what they do? They classify. If you look around, if you ask, what do you see? You can give a list of things here. There are human beings, there are men and there are women, there are uh, uh, tables and chairs, there are lights and electrical fittings. You give a whole series of things here. But what does the philosopher do? What does the Nyayika or the Vaisheshika do? The philosopher comes in and sees all of this and you know how they see it. It's, it's fascinating. They see it as substance and property and action. Dravya guna karma. What's going on? What, how will they describe this? There are things here. Bodies, tables, chairs, furnishings, all of them for them are dravya. They will all put it under one head. And all of those substances, dravyas, they have qualities. What are qualities? This table is brown. Table is a substance, its quality is brown. Right? So there are different kinds of qualities. Something is big, something is small, something is... Um, and and so, so many qualities are there. So quality is another thing. Then action. Here is some people who are sitting and breathing. Here is a person who is speaking, breathing, speaking, moving. These are actions. Now you see there's a variety of things. Thousands of things in this room. You can make an exhaustive list. All of them have been reduced to three things. Substance, quality, actions. Dravya, Guna, Karma. But still three. Actually they have an extended list of seven realities. Sapta, Padartha, Vaisheshikas. That's Nyaya Vaisheshika. Now when you come to Yoga and Sankhya, this classification is further reduced to two. Purusha and Prakriti. Consciousness and matter. Matter, energy, space, time, all of it is Prakriti. And Purusha is Consciousness. Two, but they are real. And when you come to Advaita Vedanta, the two are reduced to one reality. One non-dual reality. Can you see from a pluralistic universe to a dualistic universe to a non-dualistic view of the universe? This culmination. On the Buddhist side also, if you see the um, Sautrantika and Vaivashika, the early Theravada schools, they are frankly pluralistic. And when you come to Vijnanavada, the Buddhist school of subjective idealism, it is a, what's called a consciousness only or mind only school. And then you come to the further development 
which is Shunyavada, which is an absolutistic school. And I'm saying it's absolutistic. Some, some would say it's nihilistic. But Advaita Vedanta, I see it as a culmination of a Hindu thought. Of thousands of... In fact, it's a latecomer. The Advaita Vedanta, which we find in its present form, the Shankara's Advaita Vedanta, it's um, 1400 years old. In the older texts of Indian philosophy, the Hindu position is represented by the Nayaika, by the Mimamsaka, by the Vaisheshika, by the Sankhya, not by Advaita Vedanta. So Advaita Vedanta is a latecomer actually, but it's a culmination. I often say what uh, we Advaitins, non-dualists have done is, we have taken the, the best from each school. We have taken the, the logic of the Nayaikas. From the Sankhyas, we have borrowed pure consciousness. From the Yogis, we have borrowed the techniques of meditation. From the Purva Mimamsakas, we have borrowed the technique of interpreting hermeneutics, interpreting the Veda. And using all of them together, all these things which you borrowed from them, then you cut them down, that they are wrong and, and Advaita Vedanta is the, is the best. And Shankaracharya put the Brahman of the Upanishads on top and used all these things they have, he had we have borrowed from them. Of course, they were happy to give it to us. One of the Nayaikas, the Nayaikas had a thousand year fight, intellectual fight, debate with the Buddhists. The Nayaikas were hell-bent on proving, hell-bent is not a good word, heaven-bent, <laughs> on proving that, that we have a, an independent soul, Atma, apart from body and mind, exactly what is being criticized here. That was the Nayaika position. Yes, there is a body, there is a mind, and there is something else called Atma. They're trying to prove it. And an independent reality called God. Here is a universe and there is a creator. The God of religion, convention and religion down to this day. And the Buddhist attack was, if there is an independent reality called the soul, prove it. If there is something called God which is creating this universe, prove it. Thousand year fight. And some of the texts are so intricate. If you think Advaita Vedanta is difficult, this is child's play. This is baby philosophy compared to what those people engaged in for a thousand years. And there's a very interesting section where one of the greatest of the logicians, Udayanacharya, when suddenly this new philosophy, the new kid on the block, Advaita Vedanta, attacks Nyaya, the dualistic philosophy, like this, they sometimes poke the Nyayaikas, attacks Nyaya, Udayanacharya turns around and he says to the Advaitin with greatest respect you don't have to attack us we have erected a, a, a fence of thorns around the precious flower of Advaita Vedanta so that the he says the goats of the Buddhists can't come and eat it up <laughs> we are trying to protect you from the atheists the Nastika. We are trying to protect you from the Nastika. Don't fight with us. We are not against you. <laughs> so, uh, that was their position. Yes, I, I agree. Grand development. And it is remarkable how Advaita Vedanta and Madhyamaka Buddhism are so similar. If you say philosophy of language, similar. Epistemologically, similar. How does one attain salvation? Um, transcendence, similar. Even their description of the absolute, very similar, often in the same words, although they seem to be just the opposite. 
infinite versus the empty. I spoke about that last time. Yeah, good question. Maybe we can go on about this. Yes. Let us uh, conclude now. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu